Well, good morning and happy Resurrection Day to you, those of you who are joining us on live stream. Uh, I say a uh, hearty welcome from uh, Grace Church. For those of you who are members of Grace Church, uh, we long to be with you. We wish we could be with you today, but um, the Lord has us where we are today, and I trust that, uh, that nonetheless we will all get spiritual blessing from, from this, this sermon um, in just a moment. Uh, for those of you who are joining us who are guests, thank you so much for, for tuning in today. We, uh, we hope that the Lord will bless you today, and uh, we hope that once uh, everything gets back to normal, you'll be able to join us here at Grace Church in Swansboro, and uh, we hope to see you then. But before we get started, I wanted to, uh, to read uh, a scripture to us today that is uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, the historical account of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, today's going to be a little bit different because we're going to be in several texts, but I think this is a good text for us to start out as at. And I want you to see, as we go through this text, I'd like you to see that uh, all of the ways in which um, those who were enemies of Christ were trying to suppress uh, His resurrection, and how was that, of course, was not able to be done. So I'm going to be in Matthew 20, uh, 27, uh, and we're going to go into Matthew 28. I'm going to start in verse 62. Matthew 27, 62. This is the, the word of the Lord. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the, that imposter said, while he was still alive, that after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said he would. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly and from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met with them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story 
has been spread among the Jews to this day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather together today on this special occasion that we get to focus our attention on the death-shattering resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today, Lord, as I open up your word, as I preach, I am a, a man who is desperate for your grace. I'm desperate for you to anoint me with your spirit, to preach your word in the power of your spirit. The people who are listening, they are desperate for you, that you would allow them to hear it in the power of the spirit. And so, Lord, we trust you for that today. And we ask that you would bring much blessing to all who hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this Easter morning, our country, and in fact, the, the world at large, is experiencing something that is un unprecedented, something that we have never experienced before due to the novel coronavirus. Right now, roughly 1.2 million people are currently infected. Out of those, 50,000 people are in serious or critical condition, many of them on ventilators. And 110,000 people have died. Don't let that just be a statistic to you. 100,000 image bearers of God are dead. Right now in our country, there are places where bodies are being stored in refrigerated trucks, like places like New York, on the streets of New York. Right now, there are moms and dads and husbands and wives and children and, and aunts and uncles and friends that are undergoing a myriad of emotions. Many people are living in, in fear and in anxiety, not knowing what will happen. There are many right now who are experiencing unthinkable and unbearable pain and grief because of they've had family members who have been separated from them. Let me just ask you this. How does Easter morning speak to this? What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ almost 2,000 years ago have to do with a body that's wrapped in a bag in a refrigerated truck in New York City? Maybe closer to home. What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with your body that will one day be laid in the grave unless, uh, unless the Lord if the Lord tarries? Well, the answer to that question is the resurrection of Jesus has to do everything with that. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees that every human body in all of human history, whether snuffed out by the coronavirus or cancer, whether by old age or by accident, will one day be resurrected from the dead. I want you to listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ himself says in the Gospel of John, starting in, cha in chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. He says this, For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. That's the resurrected Jesus' voice, the ascended Jesus' voice. And come out, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This morning, we will be looking at, at why the resurrection of Jesus should be either a source of, of endless comfort and joy to you or a source of, of great fear and trembling. Main thing I want you to take away today is this, that the resurrection of Jesus 
is not just a miraculous event. It is the event that guarantees your resurrection, either to judgment or to eternal life. You may remember before Jesus' crucifixion, he made some, some pretty exalted claims about himself. Claims that can only be categorized in, in one of two categories. Either they were true or they were blasphemous falsehoods. He claimed divinity, that he was God. He claimed kingship, that he was the long-awaited Messiah that would come through the line of David, that would sit on the throne of David forever. He claimed exclusivity that He was the only way to God the Father, that none could come to, to God the Father except through Him. He claimed authority, that He had the authority to both judge sin as well as to forgive sin. He claimed power over death, that He had the authority to both lay down His life and to take it up again, and that He has that same power over your death and over my death. So how can we be certain how can we be certain that, that, that these claims are true and not just some delusion of grandeur? Answer, the resurrection. See, the resurrection is the vindication that Jesus is indeed who He says He is and that He will do what He says He will do. If you're listening in today and you think that Christianity is just wishful thinking or, or is some blind faith that has no basis, I want to, to challenge you today to take a serious look at the resurrection. I want to offer you two reasons that we as Christians actually believe this, that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. Now, this isn't going to make you a Christian. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But I do want to give you some basis by why we believe these things. First one is that the biblical evidence of the resurrection is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Let me give you some examples of that. See, God had revealed hundreds of years before Jesus ever even walked on the earth that, that he would rise from the dead. I'll give you one example of that. Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus, says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. That's his crucifixion. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Down to verse 9. And they made His grave with the wicked and with a rich man in His death, although He had done no violence and there was no deceit in His mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, here's the resurrection. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. 700 years before Jesus walked on this earth. Another biblical evidence, Jesus testified that he would rise from the dead. You can see that in, in Matthew 8, in Matthew 17, in Luke 9. Third, the tomb was empty. We saw that today in the passage that we read. You can see it in Luke, you can see it in Mark, other places. Fourth, the resurrected Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 15. And fifth, there's only one explanation for this, that Jesus' disciples after the crucifixion were fearful cowards. But after they had seen the risen Jesus, they were fearless warriors. And they went out and proclaimed Christ is, was the Messiah and is the Messiah and had risen from the dead. Here's another reason that we as Christians believe in the resurrection. Secondly, the explanations that deny His resurrection 
are absurd. They're absurd. See, many people, many of the scholars who, who actually come up with these things, they already have what's called an anti-supernatural bias. And what that just means is, is that they don't believe in the supernatural. And so any evidence or any explanation for the resurrection has to come uh, from natural means. In other words, saying that God the Father raised him from the dead is just out of bounds for them. And so here's the three theories that have been offered. The first one is the, the swoon theory. And this is a theory that says that Jesus didn't really die when he was on the cross. He merely swooned or fainted. They thought that he was dead, uh, so they took him off of, of the cross and they put him in a tomb. And while he was in that tomb, in the cold, dark dampness of the tomb, he, he, he revived and was somehow able to get to move an enormous stone out of the way and somehow walk out. Well, as we've discovered more information about what uh, flogging was like in the first century as well as what crucifixion was like in the first century, that theory has just gone out of fashion because it would be impossible for someone to be able to endure both of those as Jesus did. And so flogging, you may remember, has a, there is a whip with sharp pieces of bone and metal, and it's taken and it's, it's, and it's whipped across the, the person being flogged's back, and it rips the flesh. First century shows that many people didn't even survive that. And then the crucifixion with its brutality, it was a rare, rare occasion that anybody could, could survive that. And so that's gone out of fashion. The second theory is the hallucination theory. And this is the theory that, that the disciples, um, they actually thought that Jesus had risen from the dead, but they were real, merely hallucinating. And that sounds okay until you start to unpack it and think about it a little further. Uh, to think that, that these disciples... Uh, could have been hallucinating is one thing, but to think that every single one of them could have been hallucinating the exact th same thing on multiple occasions is quite another. And so think about this. Hallucinations happen in an, on an individualized, a personal level. In other words, groups of people don't have the same hallucination. And then you add on top of that that Jesus actually appeared to 500 people at one time, and you see the absurdity to think that 500 people could be having the same hallucination. And so that one falls apart. And then the third one is what I would call the deceiver's theory. And that's the theory that the disciples, the apostles, they knew that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And so they were merely deceiving. It was a hoax. It was a lie. And that might sound okay until you start to think about it. What did they have to gain by, by doing such a thing? Well, I'll tell you what they gained. They didn't gain fame and fortune. They gained uh, pain and persecution and eventually excruciatingly painful deaths. See, it's one thing to, to, to die for something that you genuinely believe in, that you genuinely believe is true. We can think about 9-11. But it's quite another thing to die for something that you, you know in your heart is a lie. And to think that, that 11 out of the 12 apostles, as church history tells us, died painful, excruciatingly slow uh, 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 martyrs' deaths. Well, all of a sudden you realize, yeah, that would be pretty absurd to think that they would be lying about this. And so the only plausible explanation is that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. And that fact has, whether you believe it or not, has eternal implications for both you and me. And to that we will now turn. The first eternal implication that I want you to see is in Acts 17.31. Acts 17.31. It's that the resurrection guarantees that the, judgment, the day of judgment is certain. The resurrection guarantees that the day of judgment is certain. And so you may recall in Acts 17, Paul is in Athens. 
He's at the Areopagus. He's, he's uh, preaching a sermon before the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. And he says this in the middle of his sermon, starting in verse 29. He says, But being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So how can we be certain that, that a, day in a day of judgment is indeed coming? How can we be certain that, that men didn't just create this day of judgment to try to appease their desire to have justice in a world where there's so much injustice? How can we be certain that the day of just, uh, judgment wasn't created by powerful men in order to scare people into to obedience, kind of like a power play? Well, verse 31 tells us. It's because God has given assurance. He's given evidence. He's given proof to all by raising Jesus from the dead. You see, Jesus had claimed in his earthly life that, that, that a day of judgment was indeed coming. And he had claimed that, that he would be the judge on that day, that all judgment had been committed to him. And so when God the Father raised him from the dead, those claims were validated as being true. Now, I want, I want to show you in verse 31, I want to show you three certainties in regard to this day of judgment. Three certainties. The first certainty is this, that... The certainty that the day of judgment is indeed coming. The, day, the certainty of the day of judgment is indeed coming. It says that he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. He has fixed. He has appointed. He has established a day in which he is going to judge the world. God has ordained a day. It, it's already on the heavenly calendar. Right now in the mind of God... All of human history is winding down like the sands in an hourglass, culminating in that day where he is going to dispense his judgment, where all is going to be accounted for. Jesus says that for many, from our perspective, that that day is going to come unexpectedly, that, that many people are going to be caught completely by surprise. And so a day of judgment, according to, to Acts 17.31, is not something that's hypothetical, it's a certainty, and the resurrection of Jesus proves it. Let me ask you today, are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? Do you think that you lived a life that is good enough to be able to survive that day? Well, the second certainty I want you to see in verse 31 is the certainty of who will be the judge. It says, He will judge the world by a man whom He has appointed. Who has He appointed? Well, he's appointed the one in whom he raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who had claimed that, that all judgment had been committed to him before his death and resurrection. Now, you may recall that there is a chilling scene in Revelation 20 about this day of judgment. And I want us to open up Revelation 20 and actually look at it for, for a moment. Starting in verse 11, we read this. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
Imagine how that, what that would be like. I want you to put yourself there, standing before this, this majestic throne, unlike anything that you've ever seen. The throne bearing witness to the holiness of the one who occupies it. You see, the, 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 the greatness of the throne bearing witness to the unparalleled greatness of Jesus who's on it. As you stand there before Him, you feel so small and you feel so insignificant in the presence of one with such greatness. Then you think about the whiteness of the throne. It bears witness to His spotless moral purity. And so you start to feel this, this sense of, I am filthy I am unclean because of my sin. For the first time ever, you actually feel what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah 6. And all you want to do is you want to do the exact same thing that he did when he saw the Lord Jesus high and exalted on his throne in Isaiah 6. You want to fall flat on your face and you want to cry out, Woe is me! Cursed is me! For I am a man of unclean lips! And I live amongst a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see the earth and the sky flee from His holy presence. Almost as, as, as if they are terrified with what's about to take place. Suddenly you see multitudes of angels appear. They have books. They're piling them and stacking them. And everywhere you look, there are books and piles of books everywhere. All the libraries in all the world couldn't hold that many books. And all of a sudden, when you realize what's written in those books, the hair on the back of your neck starts to stand up. You start to sweat profusely. Your heart starts to pump it profusely in terror. Because what's written in those books contain a detailed account of every word, every thought, and every deed that you've ever committed in your entire life right there before the judge. Again, this day is not hypothetical. The resurrection proves it. I ask you again, are you ready for it? Do you think that you've lived a life that's good enough to survive the judgment day? The third certainty in Acts 7, 17, 31 is the certainty of the standard by which Jesus will judge. The certainty of the standard. It says, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. In righteousness. The standard by which you will be judged on judgment day is righteousness. Perfect righteousness. You see, it is right for the creature to obey His infinitely good and holy Creator flawlessly for the entirety of his life. Do you want to know if you've done that? Well, by God's grace, he has given us something to be able to tell if we've done that. He's given us his law, summarized in the, in the Ten Commandments, to show us the righteousness that he demands. In Romans 7, Paul, he's, he's talking about the relationship of the law and sin. He says this about the law. He says, so, that the, law, he says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is righteousness, and that is what you will be judged by. You want to know if you measure up to the righteousness that God demands? Examine yourself by the Ten Commandments. I want us to, to take a moment right now, as for illustration purposes, to imagine us back before that great white throne. I want you to imagine 
that you're, you're there and before the great white throne is a, is a table. And we'll call it the evidence table. And on that table, they bring out the books that pertain to your life. And they're placed on the table before your holy judge, before, before Christ on that great white throne. The first book is, is picked up and it says on it, you shall have no other gods before me. In this book, the thickness of the book represents every time you violated that commandment. Every page chock full with violation after violation after violation. You see, in this book is, is every time you worship something other than the one true living God. Every time you worship money or possessions or sex or career or reputation or pleasure or drugs or alcohol or success or sports or other false gods. It contains every time you neglected worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day. It includes every time you fail to give the one true living God the glory that He and He alone is due. The second book is picked up. On it, it says, you shall not commit adultery. On this book, if you remember, Jesus had said that, that if you look on another with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And so in this book contains violation after violation of, of you looking on someone else with lust. Every time you fornicated, which means that you've had sex outside of the context of a relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. <laughs> every time you've gazed at pornography. Every time that your eye wandered away from your spouse. All violations written in this book before the throne. The third book is picked up. It says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is a book that is thick, marked with every single lie you've ever told in your entire life. Every time that you, you failed to, to, to speak the full truth, you withheld the truth for your own selfish gain. Every time you spoke a slanderous word against your neighbor, all in this book before the throne. Well, by the time it's all said and done... The table is stacked with, with ten books, each one representing the ten commandments, evidencing all of them, evidencing the, your sin and rebellion against the, the infinitely good and holy God, evidencing that you have broken His law in thought, word, and deed for the entirety of your life, evidencing that you have fallen short of the righteousness that He demands in a massive way because God is holy. His wrath burns hot against all that is evil, against all that is wrong, against all that is sinful. Habakkuk says this, he says, Your eyes are too pure to look upon evil, that you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Let me ask you, what will become of you on that day if your table is stacked full of sin, evidencing all of your sin in those books? I'll tell you what will become of you. Revelation tells us, says this as I continue. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if any name's na one's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake 
of fire. If your table contains sin before Christ on that day, you will be thrown into the lake of fire, into hell. And I don't say that happily. You may not like the thought of hell, but Jesus spoke about it an awful lot. Why did he do that? Was it because he was mean? No. He did it because he wanted to warn us, to warn us that, that hell is our eternal destination if, if we have any sin on the table before him. Maybe you thought that, that you're a good person and, and that when you get before God that, that he's going to judge you favorably. Well, the Ten Commandments are meant to show you that you're not a good person. Maybe you've been somebody who you've thought that, you know, I, I really look around and I think I'm better than a lot of people. And I think once I get before God, I think he'll say, see that, that, uh, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good in comparison and, and, and let me survive Judgment Day and, and let me into heaven. Well, the curve, the, 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 the standard is not other people. God doesn't judge on a curve. The standard is perfect righteousness. Maybe you've been somebody who you've created a God in your imagination. And so you say that I think God is a God of love and that He would never punish me and He would never punish anyone for their sins. Well, the resurrection proves otherwise, that indeed God will judge. And it says He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Let me ask you, what can you do? What can you do to clean that sin off of the table? The answer is you can do nothing. And that is terrifying news. But it is terrifying news that paves the way to understand, provides a backdrop to, to, to see how wonderful and glorious and beautiful the good news of the gospel is. And to that we will now turn. The second eternal implication of the resurrection I want you to see is in Romans 4.25. Romans 4.25. And we'll see that the resurrection guarantees that justification is certain for all who repent and believe. If you remember in Romans 4, Paul is talking about justification by faith alone. And he, he speaks of Abraham being justified in the same way by faith alone. And he writes this, starting in verse 21. It says, no unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Before we dive into uh, to talking about Roman, uh, Romans 4.25, I want to just ask the question, what is justification? What is it? Well, this passage actually gives us a pretty big clue. At a very basic level, it, it means to be counted as righteous. And so it's a legal term uh, that has to do with the law, has to do with court proceedings, has, has to do with a trial. And so a person on trial is either going to be uh, condemned or they are going to be justified. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us a very helpful definition to understand it. Justification, it says, is an act of God's free grace 
That means it's a free gift from God. You don't do anything to earn it. Wherein He pardons all of our sins and He accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed or counted to us and received by faith alone. And so justification is a free gift. And it, and it has two actions on God's part. And those actions are that He pardons our sins and that He counts, us, counts Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And it requires, in order to, to, to receive this free gift, requires a response from us. And that response is faith or belief or trust. And we'll talk about that in a little while. But in verse 25, it says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and He was raised for our justification. Now, the first phrase is pretty straightforward. That Jesus was delivered up or He was crucified, not for His own sins, right? But He, was, he didn't have any, but for the sins of His people. He was delivered up for our trespasses, for our sins. Now, the second phrase, it's a little bit more challenging. It says this, that Jesus was raised or He was resurrected for our justification. Let me ask the question, what does the resurrection have to do with Christ's righteousness being counted to us? I want you to think about this. When God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, it was a vindication of His perfect righteousness. If you remember, Jesus had been condemned as a criminal and that He had been sentenced to death, to, to death on a cross. But when the Father, uh, when the, in the resurrection, the Father vindicated that His Son wasn't worthy of death because He was perfectly righteous. And so He, he vindicated His righteousness. How? By nullifying His death sentence. By nullifying His death sentence. So, so it was a vindication of Christ's righteousness. But now, what does that have to do with us being counted as righteous? What's this? Scriptures speak of, of our union with Christ. Whenever you trust in Christ, you're brought into union with Him. We use such words as, as we are hidden in Him. And, and what that means is, is that uh, we're told that, that we are so united with Him that, that His death is seen as our death, and, and His resurrection is seen as our resurrection, and His righteousness is seen as our righteousness. And so we, we, what we have in, in the resurrection is when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and the Father vindicated His perfect righteousness, at the same time that's saying that, that our perfect righteousness is vindicated. Why? Because that is our perfect righteousness, Him, Him. And so that's what it means that He was raised for our justification. Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. In the greatest act of love that the world has ever known, God the Father sent His only Son into this world to take on humanity, a humanity just like you and me. He was fully God and, and fully man. Scriptures tell us that He was born under the law, just like you and I were born under the law, in the sense that, that we are responsible, just as He was responsible putting Himself under the law, to obey the Father in thought, word, and deed for the entirety of His life without flaw. He put Himself under His own law, but where we failed to, to, to actually fulfill that, Jesus succeeded. The Scriptures tell us that He lived the perfect, sinless life. 
That that by the time his entire life was over, he had not one spot of sin. He had obeyed his father perfectly for the entire time, thereby earning a perfect record of obedience. And so if Jesus had a, a table in the courtroom, his table would have a book on it that would say perfect righteousness. And in that book would be every thought, every word, every deed of his entire life that had been in obedience to his father. Perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Although he was perfectly righteous, according to the father's plan, Jesus uh, was delivered up for our trespasses. What that means is that Jesus was was handed over to, to, to the Romans by his own people. He was condemned a criminal. He was sentenced to death by crucifixion. The scriptures tell us that, that when Jesus went to the cross and was on the cross, that God made him who had no sin to be sin. So that was, what that was like is like that Jesus went into the very courtroom of God for his people. And he went to their evidence tables and he scraped all of their sin off of the evidence table. And he said, this belongs to me now. This is mine. I take responsibility for the sins of my people. The scriptures tell us that that around noon, darkness consumed the land. It was a picture of the darkness that was consuming his soul. He, He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, he was being forsaken by God. He was under the curse for the sins of his people. The infinite wrath of the Father that would have come down on His people in hell was now coming down on His own Son. Jesus was dying a death that He didn't deserve to die out of unimaginable love for you and and for His Father. While He was on the cross and He had finished paying that full cup, He drunk the full cup of His Father's wrath. At the end of it, He said, It is finished. The sins of his people were laid aside. Scriptures tell us that he he breathed his last and that he was taken off the cross. His cold, limp, lifeless body was placed in a tomb and sealed. But on the third day, the Father brought him back to life again, demonstrating that the, the payment that he had made had been accepted, that it was satisfactory to the Father and vindicating his son's perfect righteousness. And now his son's perfect righteousness is held out to you, held out to you as a gift for all who believe. And indeed, for all who do believe, their, their table in the courtroom of God will have their sins wiped out because Jesus paid for them. And the perfect righteousness of Jesus put in its place. And on that basis, they can be declared legally righteous, justified. The verdict can be made. Romans 3, 20 through 22. I'll be quoting from the, the Net Bible. It says this, For no one is declared righteous before Him by works of the law. For through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although it is attested by the law and the prophets, that means it's attested by the Old Testament, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, attested by the Old Testament, has been disclosed. Namely, the righteousness of God 
through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. Jared Wilson writes this, While everybody else is demanding obedience, Christianity is pointing to the obedience of Christ. It is because He is our only hope. We need Him. We need His perfect, spotless righteousness. We need His intervention. We need His merciful hand. We need His friendship with sinners. We need His abounding love. We need His amazing grace. Or else we die. We need Christ because even if we have all the merit badges in the world, all the successes and all the trophies and adulation and the education, if we do not have Christ, we have nothing. As we move into a time of application this morning, I want to first start and just ask you, do you have Christ? The only way to to have Christ is is to respond to Him in the way that He commands And He commands you to repent and believe in the gospel. I want to talk about repentance for a moment to make sure that you understand what that really means. Repentance can be described with three necessary elements. The first element is is conviction. You must have an alarm going off in 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 this conviction going off inside of you for your personal sin. You have to feel this deep sense of, of guilt because you have sinned against your holy creator. Conviction is important, but that's not true repentance alone. It also requires an attitude change in reference to sin. An attitude change. Your attitude towards sin changes from you being comfortable in it to you despising it and hating it and, and being grieved by it. It's like the attitude of somebody who has a, a snake latched to their, to their finger. There's nothing more than they want to do than to get that snake off of them. That's the attitude change we're talking about. But conviction and an attitude change are not alone are biblical repentance. You also have to have the third one in order for it to be true biblical repentance, and that is a commitment to turn. It is a, it is a genuine decision to turn from all sin to God in a posture of obedience and submission to Him and to His Word. It is is to stop playing the hypocrite and to endeavor to live for Him and to be obedient to Him for the rest of the days of your life, not because you're trying to earn righteousness, but because you love Him. But repentance alone can't save you. You must also do the second thing that Jesus says, and that that is to believe the gospel. Believe the gospel Believe the gospel means that you trust in the crucified and resurrected Christ for your salvation. It means you trust that He has accomplished everything necessary in order to, for, for the forgiveness of your sins and to secure a perfect righteousness before Him in the courtroom of God. If you're listening to this today and, and this doesn't really describe you, I want to love you enough to tell you that you do not have Christ no matter what you think. And if you do not have Christ, you are still in your sins. And if you are still in your sins, then God's wrath abides on you and the judgment day awaits you. But by His mercy, today you have heard the truth. You've heard the truth from His Word. He is holding out to you right now. He is holding out the perfect righteousness of Christ as a free gift. And He's saying, repent and believe the gospel. I want to encourage you and plead with you. Don't hesitate. 
Repent and believe the gospel. Your next breath is not promised to you. I think the coronavirus should, should show us that. People, 100, over 100,000 people right now, thinking, making plans for their lives, thinking they had plenty of time left over, are now in their graves. So I plead with you, do not reject this greatest gift that will ever be offered to you. It's being offered today. Now, for those of us who, who do have Christ, how should we respond to a message like this? How should we respond? Well, the first is with a, a deep sense of, of relief and gratitude to our merciful Savior for already taking that judgment for us to forgive our sins and for securing a perfect righteousness for us before God. We should be thankful because on that basis we've been justified. And what that means is that in the courtroom of God, our verdict has already been pronounced. Justified. Justified. The resurrection proves that, guarantees that. The second thing that we need to think about is we, we need to have a, this should move us to have a deep sense of comfort, knowing that any injustices that have ever been committed against us will have their day in the courtroom of God. All injustice will be accounted for on that day. No one will escape God's judgment, whether it be someone's abused you, whether somebody's persecuted you, whether somebody has, has abandoned you, whether somebody has, has harmed you in some other way. God has promised that He will avenge. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. All injustice will be accounted for, and that should bring you much consolation. Third thing is that it should bring a deep sense of hope knowing that you have, if you have been justified, then you will most certainly be glorified. What that means is that for you, coronavirus is not the end. For you, cancer is not the end. For you, some tragedy is not the end. For you, the coffin is not the end. For you, judgment day is not the end. For you, hell is not the end. No, for you, the end is the resurrection of life. That is the end for you. It is the consummation of your salvation where our Lord will make all things new. What does that mean? I'll leave you with what that means. It means that your body that is subject to decay weakness, and aging will be made new, transformed into a glorious body like Christ's. It means that your spirit that is subject to sin will be made new, transformed into a righteous spirit like Christ's. It means that you will live on a renewed earth, free from sin and curse and death and grief. It means that the most painful wound that has, been affl has afflicted you whether physical or psychological, whether by sin or by circumstance, will be completely healed. It means that abuse will be no more. Cancer will be no more. Coronavirus will be no more. Heart attacks will be no more. Hospitals will no longer be needed. Police officers and firefighters and EMT workers and doctors will no longer be necessary. And the best part is, you will see your God face to face and you will behold the one in whom you were made for. You will be captivated by His beauty and every longing of your heart will be satisfied in Him. This is eternal life. And the resurrection makes that a certainty. You see, 
The resurrection is not just a miraculous event. Rather, it is the event that guarantees your resurrection, either to judgment or to eternal life. My prayer, my hope, my desire is that for everyone listening to this, that indeed it will be a resurrection to eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, hearts that are full, hearts that have such gratitude, such relief for those of us who are trusting in Christ. You have secured it all. You've done it all. The resurrection proves it. Our righteousness is secure. The forgiveness of our sins is is secure. We don't have to fear judgment day because the Lord has already taken that upon Himself for us. We praise You for the gospel. Pray that if there be any that be here, that be listening in on live stream, that are lost, that still are in their sins, that Lord, today would be the day that You would convert them. By Your Spirit, would You bring, Lord, the truths that were preached today, And that you you would cause them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. I praise you, Father, for your grace today. And we thank you, Lord, for blessing us. In Christ's name, amen. I want to thank you guys for joining us today. Listen, if we can talk to any of you, I know we're, we're not here in person, but... Any, anybody who's listening that you want to talk about this message, talk about the gospel, we would love for you to, to contact us on our website, grace, gracechurchcc.com. Is that correct? Yes, gracechurchcc.com. Uh, we would love to hear from you. But I leave you this morning with a benediction from Hebrews chapter 13. It says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Happy Resurrection Day.